0: You don't have to answer out loud, but who did you witness to this week? Who did you share the good news of Jesus Christ with this week? If you're like me, you're often, often wondering, well, I don't know how to start a conversation. I don't know how to get into it. Um, Psalm 8's a great one. Can I tell you what song we sang this week? Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Have you ever thought of Jesus not just being a man, not just rising from the dead, but He is King Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that the Redeemer is also the Creator. That right there leads someone to a crossroads, doesn't it? Because if the Creator is also the Redeemer, and He now sits at the right hand of the Father and is ruling, then we have a response. And there is no way we can work our way to heaven. But salvation is repenting of our sin and bowing the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm telling you, if you're excited about King Jesus, people will listen to a story. Only God converts, but they will listen to a story. Let me encourage you to share that which you are excited about. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we are in Hebrews, back in Hebrews, chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll give us a recap in a moment to bring us up to speed. You know, several years ago, I preached a series entitled Signs of the Divine. Signs of the Divine. It was taken from the Gospel of John. And if you know anything about the Gospels, you'll know that, that John is not synoptic. It's not chronological. But what he focuses on is seven signs to show that Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah, though that's incredibly important, but He is, in fact, the very Son of God. That God who sunk Himself into human flesh, He was incarnated. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved because He is God. He is the very Son of God. John gives us his purpose statement in chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You see, the thought is this. If we can understand better the object of our faith, then it will help increase our faith. If we can understand better, more clearly, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the very object of our faith, then faith, which is a gift from God, will be strengthened by that. When times are tough around us, we can trust in Him who we cannot see by what we see in the pages of Scripture. Let me say that again. When tough times come, and they're coming, we can trust in Him who we cannot see reigning by what we see in Scripture, what we know to be true. And so, too, these Jewish believers who are receiving this epistle of the Hebrews are having a hard time trusting in the superiority of Jesus Christ. They're having a hard time trusting in who they cannot see. They're told He's in control, but it just doesn't seem like it. It just doesn't feel like it. And I imagine we would feel the same. It appears this audience is living in Rome, perhaps, probably part of a small church. They are Jews who have been converted out of Judaism. And frankly, it doesn't look like Jesus is ruling. Nero is emperor. A big part of the city has been burned to the ground, and Christians have been blamed for it. Not too long earlier, Jews, of which many were Christians, had been run out of the city. Personally, you've got aunts and uncles, cousins, moms, and dads who consider you a defector. And they're beckoning you to come back to the faith of Judaism. If Christ is building his church and he's on the throne and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, well, then you're seeing something that I'm not. Because it doesn't look like his church is being built. And it actually looks like the gates of hell are prevailing against it. So how am I supposed to believe that Jesus is on his throne when I can't see him? How can I believe that he is, in fact, under uh, everything is under his control when it just doesn't look like it? Now, I'm sure this has no relevance for us today, does it? (laughs) None of us have, have ever felt like this, have we? None of us have ever questioned when bombarded with the hostility of the world, the effects of the fall, the collateral damage of other sin, and just the general weariness of life. We've never doubted whether Jesus is in control, have we? Should we just end the sermon there and go to confession? I think we're all guilty of this. How is it that We're to have an anchor for our souls. How is it that we're to hold fast to what we know to be true? Christ is seated at the right hand of God, reigning now. Satan is on a short leash. When that day, that day when rule will manifest itself free from the consequences of sin, hasn't come. How am I to to make sense of all this? He's ruling but Judgment Day hasn't come. He's in control, but, but evil seems to run rampant. Some of you younger folks may be questioning as to why we as adults are just so wound tight about this election. Some of you may have a hard time realizing what's at stake because you have not seen evil run rampant before and while we may have only seen it on our TV screens in other countries it seems to be knocking at our door and yet you're telling me Jesus is on his throne if this is Christ's rule I'd hate to see what chaos looks like maybe 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 if I could just see him ruling how about that you know like Stephen when he, when he could see Jesus at the right hand of God, maybe if I, could just, if I could just see him, yes, I'd feel a lot better. Who else? You know, the fact is I probably wouldn't be because this is about seeing, but it's not seeing with our eyes. Let's, let's pray, and we'll unpack this together. Gracious Father, we come before You as a body of believers earnestly and actively praying for Your sovereign goodness. Specifically, we are praying this Tuesday for the platform that best reflects a theistic worldview, Judeo-Christian values. We're not going to mince words, Lord. We are asking that You would appoint and elect those men and women, Christian or not, that will hold fast to religious liberty, that will stand for the sanctity of life, that will bring about law and order that is talked about in Romans 13 as you have appointed the government to bear the sword Father, all of us here will admit that this country deserves swift judgment. And yet we ask for mercy, not because we are a Christian nation, for we are not. But we ask for your mercy and we ask for your interference for one specific reason. So that we might be able to continually and freely meet for worship and proclaim the gospel and protect life so that others might hear the gospel and believe. We ask this with great confidence, holding fast to the truth of your word, that you are not only capable, but that you can do above and beyond all that we ask or think. And yet, Lord, with all this, we ask, as your Son did, that it would not be our will but that it would be yours. And that if you would have your church go into a dark winter season, that we know that your goodness has not changed course, and we know that your sovereignty has not turned back, but that you see this as what is good for your church and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And so we pray for that which mirrors your desires in your word, and we trust in your decretive will, that which you deem best, that which will bring you the most glory and your children the most good. And so we lay this at your feet, and we ask asked that you would do your bidding. Now, Father, bless our time for these next few moments As we exalt the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that I would cut it straight. I pray that I would be clear, that I would not be careless with my words. I pray for this body of believers that you would turn the soil of their hearts so that the word would take root. Father, I pray for excitement in this body, I pray for joy. I pray that we would embrace truth and not gray ambiguity that we would be excited about what you are doing in our lives, the opportunities you've given us. And Father, even the hardships and the sufferings, which is hard for these Hebrew believers to see and often hard for us to see. But give us some clarity. Help us to see Jesus. As Philip said, they're saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. May we see Him today in the pages of Scripture. And give me the words to say, Recall to mind what I've studied we love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we were in Romans last week, so just a quick recap on the book of Hebrews. I mentioned earlier that this is possibly a small church in Rome. Certainly they are Jews have been converted out of Judaism into Christianity. They've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The author, it's anonymous, we don't know who it is, but he's writing in order to give them a clear picture about who Jesus is. As they're tempted to go back uh, with peer pressure and persecution, they're tempted to embrace some aspects of Judaism which are thoroughly unbiblical. There's probably pressure on them to say, you know, you can keep believing in your Jesus, that's fine, but, but don't call Him the Son of God. Because you know we as Jews pray the Shema every morning. Hero Israel, Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? And this just, this just smacks to them of some sort of polytheism. There was no expectation that the Christ, the Amashiach, would be God. Certainly not God incarnate, and certainly not one who would die. So, hey, cuz, come back to the fold. Hey, nephew, come on. Just, I tell you what, call him an angel if you want to. Name him Jesus if you like. Just quit bowing the knee to him as God. That's probably what was going on. There could have been some uh, reverence for angels as we saw in Judaism. We don't really know, but the point is this, and this is true even today. Any time we set our affections on creation rather than the Creator, that is called what, Metro Bible? Idolatry. Now, we may look at this and say, this doesn't apply to me, but when you, when you frame it that way, in what areas of your life are you setting your affections upon the creation rather than the Creator? Well, then you're committing the same sin. And so whatever's going on here... It's not necessary that we know exactly, but it is necessary that we understand what this author is doing is he is elevating Christ back to his rightful position that he is God, a very God, and there is nothing close. We, we see, starts off in verse 1 of chapter 1, Christ has spoken to the prophets and the fathers, in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. And right off the bat, we see the Son's rank, nature, role. He is the ultimate ambassador, the prophet, the final word speaking as God Himself for the Father, the sole heir, the Creator, the Radiator of the Father, the Sustainer, the Redeemer, and the Ruler. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He is prophet, priest, and king. No angel, no man, no Aaronic priesthood, no temple has ever come close. He's going to go through this theological portion all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, and then He's going to switch and He's going to give us the practical, and it's rich. It is rich. Right after the introduction, he begins this prof, uh, process of comparison, showing us how Christ is superior to the angels. If the angels were involved in delivering the old covenant, how much greater is it that the new covenant was delivered by the Son of God Himself? Oh, angels may be powerful, okay? But they're servants, whereas Christ is the Son. Angels may be otherworldly, but they are staff. Jesus is the crown prince. Believers should never, ever be tempted to elevate creation and rob the Creator of His glory. And so that took us through much uh, uh, the rest of the first chapter. And then we see the preacher does an aside where he gives a warning not to drift away. Today, he picks up the argument of Christ is superior to the angels again. As a reminder, the theme for the whole book is staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. I'm just going to drill that each week because it's so applicable to us. Staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. Now, just as an aside, if you haven't been with us, We're not going to be afraid by these warning passages. The preacher here is preaching to those who are professing believers. In the same way I preach to all of us each week as professing believers. And yet I'm not so naive as to believe that everyone in here is in fact a believer. Genuine faith works. We're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by faith that works. Believers who are saved by grace through faith, that same faith perseveres in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't punt the faith. They don't walk away. They may fall into sin, but they repent. We are saved by grace through faith, and it is a gift of God. So we're not going to be afraid of these warning passages. They're there for a reason, and it helps to remember that this is a, this is a sermon, in effect. This, this guy is preaching. So much like I do, I'll be preaching, and then I'll be like... Hey, and by the way, there's a side note here. Da 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 da. That's very purposeful. He's not just forgetting something here. There's there's a reason. So we're going to pick up from the argument where he left off in chapter one. Now this morning we're going to witness the collision of the theological and the practical. And if you're allow, will allow me, I'm not going to water this down at all. You have to really kind of be on your game this morning. Um, Because it's going to take some twists and turns, but if you'll hang with me, I'll make it as clear as possible. But I don't want to do what is tempting here, and that is to just give you a 30,000-foot level, okay? We're not looking at it from an airplane. I want to be in it. And I'd rather repeat some things and re-explain some things so that we get it. Because that's what the original audience was to get. Look at verse 5, chapter 2. It sets the stage for our sermon. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning about which we are speaking. If you write in your Bible, and you should, draw a line, an arrow, back to chapter 1, verse 13. He's picking up the argument from verse 13. But to to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalm 110. Christ quotes that as well. So we might sum up this argument, part two, that the author is making this way. Angels were not created to rule or have dominion over the earth. And I'm going to explain why that's so important to people who are struggling during times of persecution and and pressure. And they're wondering, is Jesus really on his throne? Because I can't see him. Well, what the heck does angels have to do with this? I'll explain later, but for the sake of argument, angels were not created to rule or to have dominion over the earth. Now, we're going to play off that statement for our three points. I'm going to say it this way again. Angels were not created to rule or have dominion over the earth. Point one, angels, not ever. Kids, say it with me. Angels, not ever. Good job. Good job. Number two, man, not well. Man, not well. Number three, Christ already, but not yet. And my seminarians out there are going, ooh, he's going to go there? Really? Really? Yeah, we're going to go there, and we're going to have a good time. Let's look at the first one. Angels, not ever. Verse 5 again, "...for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking." The world to come is literally the inhabited world. And it's amazing, you get into Hebrews and you've got commentaries over here that say it could never be this way over here, and these guys over here say, well, no, it sure can't be that way over here, and they start arguing. And can I tell you, I'm glad I'm not that smart uh, One of my favorite professors was Dr. Stanley Toussaint in school. I took Hebrews from him. An old guy from Hinckley, Minnesota, you know, where my wife's from, Minnesota. And I would call him sometimes Saturday night and I'd be like, "Uh, Dr. Toussaint, I'm confused. (laughs) I got to preach tomorrow and I got these commentaries that are saying this is not it, that's not it. It doesn't say this. And he'd cut me off. He'd say, Brown, what does the text say? I said, Well, it, it's, in plain reading, it says this. And he said, And that's it. That's what it means. Stick with the plain reading of the text. The world to come, the inhabited world, the author uses it again in chapter 6, verse 5, the inhabited earth. It's not a figurative place, it's not an ethereal universe but it is a very real corporeal kingdom that Christ came to establish. It is one where one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a a recreation. But His rule, watch this, His rule is already established and He is currently building His kingdom. How do we know that? Because He promises it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. All the book of Matthew is He has come and He is the King and His kingdom has arrived. But if you're like me, you're saying, but it doesn't look like it. This doesn't feel like Christ's kingdom because I'm reading stuff in Revelation where it's supposed to be the lion laying down with the lamb and it's supposed to be wonderful. And yeah, the kingdom has arrived, but the kingdom is not fully consummated yet. We haven't seen the final judgment. We haven't seen Satan dealt with. We haven't seen recreation. We haven't had the marriage feast of the Lamb. All these things, yes. But His kingdom is started. And so the world to come is a now, but you might say not yet. We're going to get into that in a little bit. It's not yet complete. I'll talk more about it later. The point is this. The author is saying, hey, Hey, you guys, I know what your aunts and uncles and cousins are telling you. I know what you learned in ancient Judaism. It's not scriptural, okay? Angels were never created to rule, period. Angels were never created to rule. And you say, yeah, yeah, but, but they're powerful. Yeah, yeah, but I've seen in the book of Daniel, there's like a, a Michael that seems to be over Israel, and there seems to be a prince of Persia. Okay, there, there's, there is a connection with angels and uh, protective areas and things like that. But he says you're missing out. Angels are ministering servants uh, sent to render service to those who will inherit salvation. But man, on the other hand, ah, that's something special. Think about that for a second. Angels were never created to rule, but someone else was. Look at our second point, man not well. It was man who was created to rule. And if you look at your text there, you'll see three uh, verses of block lettering. That's referring to Psalm chapter 8 in the Old Testament, a Psalm of David, which both Chris and Martine read. Let me go ahead and read it for you. Angels were not created to rule, but man was. Verse 6 but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He's quoting Psalm Eight there, a psalm of David, and this psalm was meant to show the, the insignificance of man in comparison to His Creator, and yet, watch this, at the same time to show Him as the imago Dei, the image of God and the highest of all creation. I know kids, when you're in school, you take your biology class, and everyone tells you that man is a mammal, and da 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 -da, and he's just another animal. He's just maybe just evolved, or got a little smarter, or, or somehow didn't drown, or whatever else. Bible teaches that man is above the animal kingdom, is separate from the animal kingdom, that was created by God in the image of God. Watch this, to rule in Stead, in the stead of God. The Puritans had a beautiful understanding of the anthropology of man. And they called man the vice-regent. You know, we, we, have, a, we have a vice-president, okay? But, but to be honest, a vice-president doesn't do much. Maybe he goes on the campaign trail. But he's there in case the president dies. But, but a vice-regent, that's vastly different than a vice-president. A vice-regent is a steward that rules in the power and authority and with the responsibility of his master. It's like the way in the ancient Near East you would have a steward over your household, and he was in charge of everything you owned. And you could leave even for years at a time, and you could trust that that household was run according to the specifications with which you left him. And so David is talking here about this this unique relationship where man is so much lower than creation, but yet God, being rich in his mercy, created him with the express purpose of ruling and subduing. And of course, we see that where in Scripture? Genesis chapter... Glad you got it. Chapter 1. okay. And if the author of Hebrews is quoting David... You've got to go back to the original source. David is quoting Moses. Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, Imago Dei, he created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Look back at chapter 7. I'm sorry, verse 7. He crowned us with glory and honor. There is no other created being or thing that remotely reflects the image of God. And no one has honor as his representative. He appointed us over the works of his hands. Adam was placed in the garden and told to what? To cultivate it, to manage it. Our position is one of responsibility. We are to cultivate and maintain, rule and subdue the entire world. And he has put all things in subjection under our feet. Now, all this seemed to go pretty well for Adam for a while, right? I mean, agriculturally, he cultivated the most massive, amazing garden ever. Without any pesticides or weeds, weed killers. He had dominion and ruled over everything. If you're a Jew, you understand this because he ruled by naming that's, that's a sign of authority. All the birds, the beasts, and the fish. That's a, that's a big job. I mean, I had trouble naming my own kids. Why do you think we just came up with the third? I don't know. It's worked. Twice. Let's do it again. Now look at the second part of verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. We say, hey, I thought this was about angels. Now this is where you need to focus. Ready? Okay, Angels were not created to rule, but man was. And So the argument goes like this. Hey, why would you ever want to elevate a created angel to the point of worshiping him or demoting Jesus to a, a level of a super angel? Because angels weren't created to rule, but in fact, man was created to rule. Now, if I'm going through suffering right now, if I'm a Jew in Rome and, 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 man, I just feel like I'm the minority, I'm being persecuted, and somehow I hear that God created man in order to rule, I might start thinking a little bit differently about me. But that's not the main purpose, but it's just part of it. But preacher, there's going to be an objection. That may all be true, and I've read uh, Genesis, but this whole ruling and subduing thing, yeah, it didn't go so well for Adam after the fall. And it hadn't gone very well the last few thousand years either. Verse 8, he says, I know. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. And he says, you know, you're right. Man doesn't seem very much like a great vice-regent now. We know that's true, right? Right? The, the, the world doesn't obey us. Certainly the animal kingdom doesn't obey us. My dog doesn't obey me, right? The preacher says you're right. But, follow me, he says, what Adam broke, the last Adam fixed. Have you ever heard that expression, the last Adam? It comes from 1 Corinthians 15. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving soul spirit. Now, what he's going to do here as he talks about the superiority of Christ over the angels, and he says angels, though they are higher than man right now, they were never created to rule, but man was created to rule. And you're like, yeah, but man blew it, and he's done a lousy job. He's not ruling at all. But then the preacher says, yeah, but Jesus was the perfect man, and Jesus as the last Adam, fulfilled what the first Adam could not. He lived both the perfect life and he died the death we deserve. And in that person and work and in that perfection, Jesus fulfilled what man was intended to fulfill and he now is ruling. There's a lot that we're going to unpack with that. But I want you to think about it. What? Does Christ refer to Himself more than any other title? Is it Son of God? What is it? Son of Man. Christ identifies with us in our humanity. I don't know about you, but going through suffering, you start to talk about the incarnation, you start to talk about the life Jesus lived, the suffering He endured... The ruling king, the creator of all the universe, stooped in solidarity to become one of us, suffered at the hands of the world like we are doing, and now has fulfilled the role that was designed for man, and he is now ruling. Now, there's two things that come out of that. Number one, there's a real identity that God, who became man, who is now ruling, that I can trust what I cannot see. Okay, But what does that also say about us? That one day we will be higher than the angels. And one day we too, in the consummated kingdom, will be ruling. And that this life, while it is, pain, while it is painful, is short and eternity is a long time. Jesus, the perfect Son of Man, has fulfilled that role perfectly. We see humiliation in His incarnation. And we see his exaltation at the resurrection. Paul talks about it. Ephesians chapter 1, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Do you know what those four terms indicate? They're orders of angels. If you're a Jew reading this, you you get you get what they're saying. Rule, power, authority, dominion. Jesus, who was a man, who is a man, is now ruling. And that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Psalm 110. And gave him as head of, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So right about now, I'm reading this, I've been tempted to go back to Judaism, I've been tempted to trim my sails, to say Jesus is less than He is, or or put my affections elsewhere, and I'm reading this, this, this letter, this sermon, and it says, hey, why are you setting your affections on angels? Christ is superior to all. And in fact, angels were never meant to rule, but man was. And Jesus, as the perfect man, fulfilled that. And Jesus is reigning now. And you think we could end there. But there's almost like another objection. Almost one in which the preacher has has just led them into. Because he knew that this is the real source of their neglect. And this is going to be the crux of the whole passage. If you've been confused until now, we're going to make it clear. I get it that man was created to rule, and clearly he has failed. I get it that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of man, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. I get it. But it sure doesn't look like Jesus is ruling in my life, in my world, in my city, and in the life of our church. And it sure doesn't look like all things are in subjection under his feet. And that's the key to this passage. Because these people are regular people like you and me, who may believe it in their head, but they're having a hard time follow it, following it and trusting it with their heart. And the problem is not simply with their faith. Their faith is inextricably linked to their understanding of the object of their faith, Jesus Christ. I just don't see all things under His control. I don't see it in my circumstances. Point three. If angels weren't created to rule, Christ already, but not yet. Look at verse 9. Circle this, highlight it, star it, but we do see Him. I don't see everything under man's control. I don't even see Jesus. The preacher says, ah, but you do. What you can't see in him ruling, you can see clearly Jesus. And what he does is he takes him back to Psalm 8. And this time what he does is he shines light on Psalm 8. that Ultimately, Psalm 8 is not just about man, but is actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 again. Who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely what? Jesus. Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Think about if this preacher, if if I as your pastor can get you in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, the greatest anxiety when you say, but I can't see Jesus on His throne because it looks like the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And if I can say, but see Jesus. You say, but I can't see Jesus. It's like, hold on. No, no, no. It says here, you can see Jesus. And you push back and you say, how can I see Jesus? He's invisible. And I will say, see Jesus in Scripture. So that what you can't see in Him ruling, you can trust to be true because you can see it in Scripture. Back to John, the seven signs. Watch this. The water into wine it was not just a first miracle about some great Cabernet Sauvignon. What it was was a taste of the kingdom to come. Even when Mary goes to him and says, Hey, wh- whatever he says, do it, he says, It's not my time yet. Translation, this is not the great messianic banquet. But I tell you what, I'm going to give you a glimpse of the glory to come. And what does he do? He gives him a wine that is more amazing than anything they've ever had. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. This wasn't that I just missed my friend. It was that I want to give you a glimpse of glory. I want to give you a taste of what the resurrection is going to look like. And in a few days, you're going to see the reality with me. And 1 Corinthians makes it clear that his resurrection guarantees Ours. The feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just about a bread line or a soup kitchen that was manifested instantaneously. It was that He is the bread of life. And whereas the manna could not sustain the, the, the uh, Israelites other than temporally in the wilderness, this can sustain you daily all the way home. He is the bread of life. And of course, in Matthew, we see the transfiguration, where you get the real glimpse of His glory, where He peels back, and gives us this magnificent glimpse of who He is. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And while He was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. But I can't see Jesus ruling now. But you know the transfiguration is true but I can't see Jesus really now. But you know He spoke, and the wind and the waves were calm. The dead rose back to life. Diseases were healed. Blind men could see. So what you cannot see with your own eyes, with visible light, you can see in Scripture. And more than that, he suffered like you're suffering. Look ahead at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's not that Jesus is asleep at the wheel. It's not that because we can't see Him, He's not ruling. Our persecution and sufferings are part of His plan. In the same way, His persecutions and sufferings were part of the plan of the Father. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Who are many sons? That's us. If the author and perfecter of our faith, if the Redeemer who is the Creator, if it was part of God's plan to take Him through sufferings, the path to the throne was through the cross, so too His followers will suffer. And God is still on His throne. So we can trust in the areas we can't see because we can trust in the areas we can. When we can't clearly see through the fog of our own suffering, we're called to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see Jesus in Scripture. Lilius Trotter was an artist living in London in 1879. You probably never heard of her. I hadn't either. She couldn't shake the belief that God wanted to use her for greater things. She set her heart to reach Muslim women in North Africa. She had neither the health nor the support to go, though she was financially well off, and ended up sending herself there in 1888. And she worked diligently to not only learn the language, but to pierce the veil so that she could get to and reach these women with the gospel. But through all the challenges, she realized it was something very important. It was important for her to stay, stay focused on her Savior. And so she wrote in an evangelical tract entitled "Focused." I wanted to read it to you as we close. She says, "Quote: It is easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where the focus lies. Where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning?" Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? Does this test not give us the clue? The dare to have it out with our God, and after all that is the shortest way. Dare to lay bare your whole life and being before Him, and ask Him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and His glory. Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look at him, and a strange dismiss will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine atriat, which is God's saints, which by which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. Focused. Focused on Christ. Well, it's long since gone out of print, I think it was only published maybe locally, but in 1980, someone gave a songwriter this track. Her name was Helen Lamel, and she read this, and read it, and read it, and sat down and penned these words. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. But you may ask, how? The final verse gives us the answer, His Word. Shall not fail you, He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. If you find yourself not seeing Him reigning, the author tells us to look for Him in His Word and trust that He is on His throne.